What's up everybody? Welcome to the latest edition of the I'm Curious to Know project. It's a pleasure to have you here and I'm stoked to bring you today's guests. Chris Gime. Chris is the CEO of Velofix, a company of mobile bike shops. Velofix was born out of frustration. Traditionally, you only had one option for getting your bike fixed. You'd take it to a local shop and hope they had the time, the tools, or the insight to fix your bike. Often that meant multiple days off the road and a hit or miss customer service experience. So Chris and his two co-founders asked the simple question, what if the bike shop came to you? Seven and a half years later, they have over 100 trucks on the road, an office in Vancouver, BC and Austin, Texas. And after some initial uncertainty when the COVID stay-at-home orders were implemented, Valofix has experienced their greatest months as a business over the last two months. People are riding their bikes more, which is awesome, and a trend I hope to see continue. This was a wide-ranging business discussion and a snapshot into how Chris maintains athletic goals outside of work to ensure he stays focused and brings a new level of creativity to his work. This is a great conversation and I hope you'll enjoy it. Chris, welcome to the show. Hey, good to, uh, good to be here, Trav. A long time. How's the East Coast treating you? The East Coast is great. It uh, was uh, a little wild there for a bit. It felt like uh, winter was never going to end. Uh, it rained for what felt like a month straight. Now it's 80 degrees and sunny and beautiful and green. And uh, yeah, happy life. Awesome. Have you, uh, have you locked the two little ones up for this call? or? Uh... <laughs> Mama, Mama's on duty. Mama's, uh, Mama's doing a great job. She knows every day at 3.30 she's on duty. I usually come out to a bit of a war zone out there because the, the afternoon... Uh, the afternoon rumble start. Now, it has been a little while. You know, we haven't chatted in a bit, but I've been following your journey. I've uh, been following Velofix very closely. And from what I understand, uh, you guys have had uh, some scary moments in the beginning of this COVID period, but then you've been able to rebound and, and had some really successful months, uh, which makes sense. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. But I want to take a step back and I want to touch on how the idea of mobile bike shops came to life. I was born in a garage uh, over beer, which I think probably a lot of businesses have, been, have started over the years. So uh, two great business partners, uh, David and Boris, it, it was born out of frustration. It was born out of a pain point and um, a need to try to find a solution to something. From our perspective, you know, David and I were the customers. Uh, we were uh, busy people. We just wanted to ride our bike and we thought that the current model was was broken. It, it just wasn't that efficient and the level of customer service wasn't what we thought it should be. Uh, Boris was uh, working in a bike shop while he was going to university. So he saw the other side of it in terms of the frustration, uh, in terms of the retail environment of things. So that was it. It, it was very simple. It was, it was sitting in a garage and, and David had this idea of, you know, can you take the service to the, the customer? versus the other way around. And, you know, we didn't invent the concept of mobile bike shop. They'd been around, been around in Europe for years, actually been around in North America. But the thought process for us at the time was, can we make it more efficient? Can we scale it? And can we make it a, a professional service? Uh, bike shops sometimes were like going to the dentist. It wasn't a great experience. Uh, they were open the same time you were working. Uh, there was a bit of a challenge. You had to leave your bike there. So potentially you didn't have it for a week. And with everything going mobile and at home, uh, we just thought there had to be a, a better way. And it was that simple. We got, that was October of 2012. And by January of 2013, Boris had built a truck and uh, we were rolling around Vancouver. Quite often, well, a lot of great businesses start over beer in a garage, but it's also a lot of times it requires some feedback from the community and some 
gathering of data. And I know that you and David are smart business people and you put in some of that energy and time to identify whether or not that was a market. What were some of those early conversations that you had with potential consumers and people that you would be selling to? And, and what was the feedback? I'll tell you this, Trev. Like we, we reached out to friends, colleagues. Um, we asked people, would a service like this make sense for you? What do you think? And very quickly into those conversations, people would stop you and say, I love it. They had a lot of questions, obviously, but if we came from the bike business, we probably wouldn't have started this business because there would have been too many reasons why not to do it. You know, I think you need to be careful of reaching out to people and asking uh, for too much advice because everybody will have a reason why something wouldn't work. So I don't want to sound like um, we, we just uh, winged it, but the honest truth is we, we all wrote checks and put money in the bank. We did a little bit of recon locally, but we did wing it. We put a truck on the road and, and then we basically used our network, used our contacts, sort of driving word of mouth awareness. When you start a business, it's usually friends and family. And then when we started seeing people we'd never heard of booking, um, that's when we realized, wow, this could be something. And very quickly it evolved and all of a sudden we were doing pretty significant revenue in a short period of time. And Boris was working, you know, six, seven days a week, 18 hours a day, literally. And uh, we quickly got feedback on our business model and made adjustments and made changes. But if we had worked on a business plan for another six months or 12 months and, and done more due diligence, we, we may not have got it off the ground, but yeah. you know, that's how, that's how we got started. And there's obviously a lot more to it in terms of backend infrastructure and things like that, but that was really the basic starting point. You mentioned that it wasn't a brand new concept, but in, in reality, it was a, it was a pretty new concept. You guys had transformed whatever model there was existing uh, to fit with the service that you wanted to provide. You mentioned professional service. How do you begin to start pricing things out? How do you begin to start organizing route management? How do you begin to start thinking about how people are going to book and all of those things? What were some of those details that you guys had to go through to, to, to have a product that was, was workable and feasible? Yeah, I think first and foremost, you, you, from a concept perspective, you want to you wanna know um, who you are and what you're trying to do. You know, you can check what's going on in the market and you can see what potential competitors are doing, but I truly believe this. You need to build something you're passionate about and you need to build something that you want. And it may sound very simplistic, but if you build something that you truly as a consumer think makes sense and that you want, that was basically our starting point. We, we chose a Mercedes Sprinter, not because it was the cheapest vehicle, but because it, we thought there was a certain image to it. Yeah. Um, you know, the European uh, service courses and, and uh, you know, the Sprinter van's been used for years. So we thought that would would create a profile for us. We worked on the colors, we worked on the graphics and things like that, and, and definitely spent a lot of time and energy there. But we really wanted to create um, a professional and a higher level of service, and that was the starting point of, of that. Having said that, you want to be very, very careful you don't price yourself out of the market. So the thought process for us when we started was, well, listen, we're coming to somebody's home. It's a concierge-type service but we'll price ourselves at the same rates as the best bike shops in town. And we thought if we did that, we wouldn't give somebody a reason not to try the business and we'd start getting some traction. So, you know, we don't have the same overheads as a traditional retail environment does. So our margins were significantly better, but pricing wise, that's kind of how we started in the bike industry. Uh, you buy from kind of two or three major suppliers and everything has suggested retail pricing. So, you know, that part was fairly straightforward. Um, the biggest challenge we had was logistically. Uh, mm -hmm. We wanted to make the business easy, right? So um, we didn't want Travis to have to phone or text or try to track down a mechanic. 
So the online booking system and, and things that we built on the back end were definitely harder. But the whole concept of this was simplicity. You know, you, yeah. you put your postal code in, it brings up the time and dates uh, were available in your neighborhood and you, you pick your service package and you book. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if you book Thursday at two o'clock, the van should be rolling up Thursday at two o'clock to, to give you a major tune up or whatever you booked. Was it always a franchise model that you saw in the beginning or was it we're going to have one truck, maybe we'll have two? Or was that grand vision in place where you've got 100 plus trucks on the road now? Yeah, I'm not going to BS you. Uh, <laughs> the, the, vision was to put, the vision was to put one truck on the road and to make enough money to, to pay, pay Boris a salary. And, uh, and for David and I to be able to get our bikes fixed and buy product at wholesale was, was uh, maybe was the first six months. That was our goal. Uh, but as I said to you earlier, very quickly, we realized that we had something, you yeah. know, the schedule started filling up the feedback that we got from people was fantastic. So yeah, I think from there we started looking at, okay, how do we scale it? And the beautiful thing of a franchise model is you're scaling the business with somebody else's capital. So you're, you know, you've got a franchise fee, um, you, you're building the mobile bike shops and you're selling the mobile bike shops to people. So that's why we thought the franchise model made sense. It's a service-based business. There's a lot of things that in franchising that, that work in our models. One thing that I've always thought about with you guys, and we've had this conversation before, some to, you know, you talk about professional service and my experience with Valuefix as a consumer has been that. It's been a professional service no matter what. Sometimes I'm like the mystery shopper. I don't even say that I know you and the service is always fantastic and they go above and beyond. But I know that's not always possible. You, you give up some control by having someone else providing the service on your behalf. So tell me about some of those kind of quality control measures or thoughts that you go through as you're um, vetting the franchisees. How do you maintain that professional level of service across the board? Uh, that's a great question. And that, uh, to be honest, was our single biggest fear. As we scaled this, as somebody else was doing it, are they going to give the Boris level of, of professional service that we were accustomed to and what, that we wanted? So the thing I'll say about uh, what we've done here is uh, our franchise partners are not typical people looking to buy franchises. All of our franchise partners have a passion for cycling, and that's the connect point. They come from a lot of different uh, business backgrounds and, and the different backgrounds across North America, but the passion for cycling is there. And from day one, when we look at selling a franchise to somebody or we start onboarding and training, it's all about customer service because the, the single biggest revenue source we have today is repeat customer. And number two is referral. And we figured if you, if you can't get those right in the beginning, it's very difficult to scale. So um, we use something called Net Promoter Score, which is used by, by many Fortune 500 companies. And, and basically what that is is, on a scale of one to 10, would you recommend this to a friend? Nine and 10 is yes, you're a promoter. Anything below that is you're neutral or you're not a promoter. And you know, our score is 94.6% system-wide. And we have a franchise partner to thank for that, but they know that. The, the, the mechanic in the, in the truck, the person that owns that franchise knows that if we don't get that first interaction right, they're not coming back and they're not, uh, and they're not telling a friend. So it's been critical for us and, and we've been blown away. That's been the key to our success trying to make that interaction as, as positive as possible and as professional as possible. And as I said, I have to thank our franchise partners because they, they've embraced that. You know, we can talk about customer service and great service at a head office level all we want. But mm -hmm. as you know, if the technician in the truck is having a shitty day and they're off and that, that interaction is bad, you know, that affects everybody across our network. So having that for motor score keeps everybody honest. 
because we get every report from every mechanic from every uh, mobile bike shop across North America, and and the mechanics know that. You mentioned franchise partners coming from an array of backgrounds. You mentioned people, you know, with a passion for cycling, but they may not have been in the industry. Are there any um, standout partners or stories that you have of people who have kind of made these significant life changes? They've bought into a franchise and they've just been able to transform their life through being a Velofix franchisee. Yeah, it's it's funny. We've got two different models. So we have uh, what we call a an owner operator. That's typically a, a mechanic that's that's uh, operating one mobile bike shop or maybe two. You know, in most cases, obviously they came from the industry or they had left the industry and, and wanted to get back into it. Uh, and then we have the uh, I'd, I'd call it the investor model. So those people are buying multiple territories or putting multiple bike shops on the road and. That comes from everything from guys on Wall Street in New York to um, uh, guys that you know, senior vice presidents and companies in, in different markets. But, you know, I look at somebody like Trent Newcomber, who's our, our franchise partner in Denver, Colorado, who's ran a very successful vet- veterinarian business, was super passionate about cycling, still is, races. He's a master's racer, super fit guy. And, um, you know, he saw this as an opportunity as a transition, you know, and, and he's since sold his, his vet clinic and uh, he's got multiple mobile bike shops and he just actually renewed after five years. You know, he's super passionate about it and he loves it. And he's out at the events and he's pumping tires and he's engaged in the community. Adam, who's our franchise partner in Ottawa, who's a, a wonderful young man who I use him as an example. And, and uh, we always do because sometimes you'll hear from franchise partners say, ah, you know, I'm having a tough time. My market's not great. We can always use Adam as a, as a reference point uh, when you know, well, you know what the weather's like in Ottawa, Canada. And this guy just puts up phenomenal numbers and he's super engaged in the community. Listen, every day is not wonderful. Um, mm-hmm. you, you have your challenges, but everybody in our, in our business has that connect point, which is a passion for cycling and, and they care. And that's hard to fake. Our franchise partners that do the best are out doing charity work. They're at their local elementary schools, you know, teaching kids how to pump up tires and safety check bikes. And, and they're engaged in the community. We've got franchise partners from Seattle to Florida and, and there's just wonderful stories throughout. So Yeah, that's amazing. Um, now, I know you do have 100 plus trucks on the road between franchise partners, between corporate trucks that you've got out there. It's not, it's not easy to get to those numbers. There's a lot of things that can go wrong in that point. There's a lot of luck. There's a lot of opportunity that you need to take with both hands. Tell me about some of those moment, pivotal moments in the, in the history of Velofix that have taken you from where you were to where you are now that really stand out for you as memorable. Yeah, I think there's a few things along the way, you know, uh, obviously selling your first franchise. So Simon Whitfield, who, uh, you know, is a, is a triathlon legend, a Canadian legend, was officially our first franchise partner in Victoria. When somebody outside your 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 company or your inner circle looks at your business model and, and decides that it makes sense, that, that's always great validation. I made a comment earlier, if we were from the bike industry, we probably wouldn't have started this business. But um, when we started and, and Boris was building the truck, one of my jobs was to get connected to a supplier and start securing our supply chain. Well, I quickly realized and was told that you guys don't have a brick and mortar store, so we're not selling you. It, uh, it became very apparent that this is going to be harder than we thought it would because we literally didn't have a, a brick and mortar store. Um, we didn't have full catalog, but getting the first account open was a, was a huge validation point for our model. Uh, there was somebody within that company that believed in us and, and you know helped us get open so we could buy product. Um, you know, we had some media along the way, which was really cool, but uh, we, we probably didn't expect. But, you know, front page of the Vancouver Sun, uh, Outside Magazine did a, a cool piece on us. We're in the New York Times business section. 
Um, we've won a few awards over the years that you know, those are great validation points. Uh, our first franchise partner in the U.S. in Santa Monica was, was a pretty cool experience uh, to go through. Uh, I'd say uh, signing a partner like Canyon Bikes, uh, you know, we are, a, we are a delivery and build partner for them in, in the United States. And that was massive validation. Yeah, a lot of little things along the way. You know, when you hit when you hit 50 mobile shops on the road, and when you hit 100, um, and every day, you know, when you're when you're talking and you see the customer reviews, um, those all add up. There's a lot of ups and downs and challenges, but uh, we feel very lucky. Tell me about how you know the world. All of a sudden, there's so much uncertainty. There, there's places that are in stay-at-home orders. There's lockdowns. There's essential businesses, and you're thinking about every single state in the U.S has their own regula- regulations or their own idea of what essential businesses mean. Tell me what those initial couple of weeks were where you're navigating just what it meant for your business in these times. Yeah, we, uh, you know, I guess this was March, mid-March, really, when um, the announcement started to come out. And uh, I think the Bay Area in California is one of the first places to, you know, shelter in place. Obviously, we're watching what's going on in Europe as well, and in Spain and France and Italy had really locked down and people couldn't leave their home. And I don't think you could actually legally ride your bike there for a couple months outside. You know, we had been launching corporate trucks at the same time. So we've got all these trucks, we're rolling, we've got um, employees, we've got inventory in those trucks. So, you know, I'd say there's a couple of weeks in March that were pretty dark for us because we didn't know, you know, we thought maybe we'd have to shut the whole system down and, and, um, when you look at companies uh, in terms of cash flow and, and how they're positioned, um, you know, you've got some of the biggest companies in the world that, that have gone bankrupt and have had some, some really challenging times. So um, it went from that, which I'd say is very, very dark, the darkest I think we've had in the history of the company. And very quickly, those places started opening up. Uh, we were deemed an essential service in, in most markets. And um, very quickly, you started seeing people buying bikes. Uh, they couldn't go golfing anymore. They couldn't play tennis. They had kids at home. Um, they wanted to get out and exercise. You think, you know, men and women on 20-year-old bikes with 20-year-old kit rolling around. So people are getting bikes out of the garage. And yep. we went from, I'd say, the two darkest weeks in the history of the company to uh, April was the single biggest revenue month we had in the history of the company. And May's going to smash that. I think these trends were happening anyway in, in, uh, in cycling. But I think post-COVID, cycling is going to become more important in the world. That's obviously a big benefit for Velofix and our model. Yeah, there's been a lot of reports and you know anecdotal reports, um, in, uh, industry reports talking about how there has been a boom in in bike sales. Um, you know, particularly you know some of the lower end product um, that people are just wanting to get out and they you know they may have, haven't had a bike for a few years. There's e-bike sales that are going up. You talked about your relationship with Canyon. Tell me about what you're seeing. What are some of the trends that you're anticipating and, and planning for post-COVID? I think these trends were happening before, Trev, but I think this, this escalated it very, very quickly. There's three things that really we built our business model on that have evolved over the years, but I think post-COVID are going to be even more impactful. And one is direct-to-consumer. Um, we probably get between 20 and 30 requests a month from brands that want us to do their last mile and their white glove uh, delivery and build. So I think that trend, that direct consumer trend is gonna continue. Um, You're seeing it in in every different industry. Obviously people have been at home for a month now. Um, They're looking for solutions. Uh, Number two would be at-home services, Mm -hmm. uh, something we've done from day one, but I think that concierge at-home service is gonna be more important than it's ever been. And then the third one is fitness from home. And I call cycling fitness from home, cycling, running, 
And, um, you know, I think more and more people are just, they're getting back to basics. I'd say those are the kind of the overall uh, macro trends. And then from a micro perspective, e-bikes, you know, in, in the years we've launched this business in the last five years, e-bikes have just become such an important part of the, the cycling world. Uh, people using e-bikes for uh, commercial use, so delivery drivers and things like that in major city, that's just going to continue. Um, gravel, you know, getting off the road, uh, more adventure type of, of riding, um, which, you know, I know you've been doing for the last couple of years now. And overall, I think more people on bikes, you know, whatever price point and whatever they're doing, I think it's great for the industry overall. And quite frankly, it's great for the planet. I want to talk about, go back a step or go back a couple of years. You kind of committed to getting back into triathlon. I know you kind of did some triathlons uh, a few years ago now and you, you got back into it and you set some goals and I watched your diligent in your training and you're putting in the time and the energy and the effort. I want to talk about how you think that may have translated to you as a businessman and how that has translated you into a better husband and a better leader. I'm glad you said better husband. That's great. I did, my wife must have sent you a message uh, commenting on how great I've been in the last couple of years. <laughs> I did my first Ironman in 2009, um, kind of on a whim. And uh, then, you know, we started Bellafix kind of the end of 2012 and I did Ironman in, in 2012. And then really got into the, the cycling world. And I didn't really understand cycling in terms of the community aspect and the social aspect and the people that are riding bikes, the demographics, the CEOs, the entrepreneurs, you know, cycling really became a great connector. And I know I've done tons of meetings on my bike and I've met some absolutely amazing people over the years. People I've, I'm sure I would have never met without Velofix and without cycling. So there's been that trend. But from a training perspective, you know, uh, very lucky to have some good buddies that are incredible athletes. You know, Jeff Diker, who was the, the guy, the guy that got me motivated. He went to Kona, and then he had qualified for the Ironman World Championship, the 70.3 race last year. And uh, when we found out it was in Nice, France, uh, it got everybody excited. So running was my my favorite thing in the world. Uh, cycling would be two, and swimming would be 1,040th in terms of things I enjoy doing. People that say they don't have the time and they're too busy and they're, you can make the time. And, and that's what I love about triathlon is one, you know, as I said, for me, swimming is, is I'm just not very good at it, So I love the challenge of it. Um, and then the discipline required. And when you put something on the, whether it's business or sports, when you put something on the calendar and you commit to it, it just, you know, it just raises the level. Yeah. And, and from my perspective, I loved it. I mean, 20, 2019 was a, you know, if you want to call it a selfish year, it was a very selfish year. Went out and did a bunch of races, spent a lot of time with my buddies training. My wife was very patient and great. And the kids were, you know, understanding. And, um, yeah, that's what I love about it. it there's a discipline to it. Um, always try to stay fit, but there's another level that you need to find when you want to go compete. And for me, you know, as you know, trying to qualify for these races now has become much, much harder over the years the um the requirement it takes to get there is uh, is a lot different and and it's momentum travis you know like when you get fit and you start seeing those wins and that affects what you eat and maybe you don't have that second glass of wine and you understand how important sleep is but you, you're actually your brain and your energy level gets picked up I, yeah. I truly believe that so the more fit you become and the more you train and work out i, I for me anyway the brain gets sharper and I'm more motivated from a work perspective and training for triathlon and doing these races is, is business for me. Yeah. So when I went to St. George, Utah or Oceanside, or you're always working, you're connecting with customers. We've got franchise partners in those areas and the triathlete I've said it since day one is our best customer. 
they typically have less time and not as great knowledge about their bikes and you know they're training for races they're traveling to races so you said a couple of really interesting things there i think that you know the brain sharpness the focus the determination every business leader that i look up to and admire or respect or have had the opportunity to talk to has some element of goals or uh, discipline outside of business life because of what you talked about it just gives you that moment or that opportunity to separate but you're also more focused when you are within each of those segments but I've also found, I'm sure you're the same, some of my best ideas come when I'm out in the yeah. woods on my bike or I'm out running or I'm sweating or I'm, you know, so I think there's probably benefit to that as well where you can kind of get away and get get some of those new fresh ideas into your head. Now, I know that your experience last year in Nice wasn't just racing. Jeff uh, Diker, who you mentioned, shared some interesting intel around some of the uh, in off-course activities that you guys, uh, guys enjoyed. He, and- he signed an NDA. I'm a little surprised <laughs> Things, but. He, well, I think he, he skipped the he skipped the part about um, you leading the charge. Uh, but yeah. tell me about obviously that's a fun trip. You guys are all together. There's this community element. There's this bonding that happens. Tell me about that experience and kind of what that was. Not just the off course stuff, but what it was like to be competing in a world championship. Yeah, I, I think first and foremost for us, it was um, there's there's putting the goal up right as you know it's setting the goal and then starting to build that foundation to get there and uh the training is to me some of the most enjoyable parts of it like you know you love to race but when you're out there racing it's really you're just kind of expressing what you've built to get there and um you know having those three other guys when you don't want to maybe go swim in the morning or you don't want to go on that longer bike ride um you get held accountable to that and listen i'm 48 years old, I wasn't going there to win. Um, you know, maybe a couple of the other guys I, I, I train and race with could could uh, have something realistic like that. Um, I was going there to, you know, lay it all out on race day and do the best I possibly could. But um, there was no uh, illusion that uh, I was going to be standing on a podium. So there's a healthy balance there. Look, we all put in the time and work and we take it very seriously. But, you know, part of this whole trip, was when we found out hey it's in nice france you know like if it was in uh uh, cleveland ohio one (laughs) i probably wouldn't have done it and two and nothing against cleveland but two it it just wouldn't have the same ambiance so you know for all of us to get on the plane together and go over there and you know i don't want to tell too many stories but you know we got off the plane and went straight to the beach club and had a great lunch and, and some rose and and uh you know, I don't know if we slept for the first 24 hours, which is probably not uh, optimal for uh, a pre-world championship race. But, you know, we got up every morning and trained. And then we, you know, we had some wine and we ate very well. And we had some wine at dinner. And, and that's what I love about it. There's a commitment level and everybody's there to do their, their utmost. But you got to have fun along the way. And, yeah. and that's, you know, and I think that's the same in business as well. Like if you start taking yourself too seriously, or if you start thinking that, you know, maybe you're something that you're not, you just have to be very realistic. There's some things that I've remembered over the years from bosses and people that I've worked with. And, you know, one of the ones I love is, look, you're never as smart as people think you are, and you're never as stupid as people think you are. Like, you have to be balanced. And I think that's the same in sports. Yeah. As you know, you're going to have very tough training days. And then you're going to have some days on race day that, you know, for whatever reason, you just don't perform at the level that you want. And then sometimes you have, you know, in, in Oceanside for me, I ended up winning my age group, which is honestly was a, 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 a bit of a shocker, but it was a great day. 
you talked about that passion um, and having keeping it fun and keeping it light in some moments. How do you do that within the business? You know, you're running a, a, a big organization. The revenues are growing. The customer base is growing. The franchisees are always looking for your support. One, I've got two wonderful business partners. So going at it alone, uh, that, that's a tough, tough proposition. And, um, you know, I don't know, quite frankly, how a lot of people do it without having, as I said, two, two wonderful business partners and David and Boris that we, um, we can share those things with. Because, listen, you have off days, off weeks. Um, when one person's down, one person's up, you can balance those things off of each other. Uh, we have a phenomenal team, both in Vancouver and Austin. You know, one person uh, or two people or even three, three founders doesn't make the company. You, you need a great team. And I, I think, you know, you try to lead by example. And, and once again, if, if the leadership of the company has that same concept of, look, we're all committed here. We expect a lot out of everybody. But, you know, as long as you're going in and putting everything forward in terms of your best effort, we live with those consequences. And you're not going to win all the time. You know, you want to win more than you lose at the end of the day, but you, you can't live and die by every contract or every interaction. So is that's what you do is you just show up every day and, and you grind away. And, you know, the, the actual running of a business isn't very romantic. Um, it, it's a lot of grinding away and it's a lot of behind the scenes. But, you know, from my perspective, is, is you get the best people you can involved and, and you give them um, as much uh, ability and motivation as you possibly can. And, you know, you try to empower them. And, and I think if you get the right people and, and they feel empowered and they're uh, motivated, you know, they're, listen, they're going to be a lot smarter than I am personally, and they're going to drive a lot more things than I ever could. That's great insight. I know that you have actually put into place some really interesting initiatives that have helped bring your whole business together and your whole company together. You're hosting these summits of all the franchisees and you're bringing in partners and you're hosting parties and dinners and rides and you're creating this environment where people are looking forward to those type of events. Yeah, I think, as I said to you, I feel very lucky because for me, combining a passion with business is, is a lot of people don't get to do that. I get to do very, a lot of cool things. And, you know, I know at times people, people send me, oh, yeah, you know, tough life, tough life. But as you know, you, you're always working, you're always on. So, you know, for me to go to Kona, Hawaii and watch the Ironman World Championship, is incredible. I, I have so much respect for those athletes, not just the pros, but the amateurs that are there. So I feel very lucky. But, mm -hmm. you know, I've been to Kona three times. I, I haven't been in the ocean yet. You know, like you're you're there, you get up in the morning, you, you do a group ride with you know, some industry people and you're networking and you're doing lunch and, and there's events every day, as you know there. So you're always meeting with suppliers. I'm meeting with franchise part, potential franchise partners, current franchise partners. And the beauty is, as I said earlier, is all of our franchise partners have a passion for cycling, whether they're mountain bike riders or they're just commuting to work or they're, you know, they're gravel or they're triathletes or whatever. So there is a, there is a connection point that happens, but... I'm sure as you've witnessed, I know we've, we've done some events together in New York and, and other places. Mm -hmm. um, when you get people on a bike, everybody's the same. And I don't care if you're the CEO of a billion dollar company or if you're um, you know, the local mechanic in the bike shop, everybody's the same. And we're all out there suffering. And there's just a connection that happens, as you know, um, that um, is very, very special. And I didn't know it, it existed before we started this. And um, the people that I've got to meet and, and get on bikes with has been absolutely incredible. So for us, that's very, very important is, is getting people out of their normal working environment. Every city I go to is, hey, let's meet in the morning for a ride. You make that part of the, the business day and part of the meetings. And 
I think it just changes the atmosphere of people. And it, you have conversations on a bike that you, there's no chance you're having those sitting around a, uh, an office. We do our franchise partner summit and we've, uh, we've got great partners and suppliers that come. So we just did it in Scottsdale in January. Uh, I think it was 150 or 160 people. And we've got Shimano there and SRAM and Oakley and Canyon. And, and they're super excited as well because they're getting direct contact with mechanics and franchise owners. So it's a big part of what we do. I've looked up to you as a businessman. You've been very generous with your time and advice and um, knowledge over the years. So I really appreciate that. And I appreciate you joining me today. Before I do let you go, I do have three questions that I ask every day. I'm ready. All right, here we go. So number one, what's one thing that's changed for you during this COVID lockdown isolation period that you want to keep once we go back to whatever this new normal is? More time on my own, more time uh, quiet and uh and food good news is i'm riding more bad news is i'm eating more but i I feel like i'm doing i'm a lot more healthy than i used to be what have been some of those things where you have had more time alone what are some of those activities or or things that you're taking on that are giving you that space yeah i think from my perspective is is you know part of my role is there's a create you know a creative factor that that needs to come and play and and i find personally that's hard to get there in a busy office and and interruptions and a lot of noise i've got 18 year old twins a boy and a girl so i don't have the same challenges as as some people at home in terms of trying to babysit and homeschool and things like that my wife's very busy with the project as well so just much more time on the bike um get up before work usually 5 36 in the morning i'm an early riser you can get a nice bike ride in uh and then after work you know might do two days or whatever but those are the times I think you mentioned, like the brain works differently. The endorphins are going. That's what I love about being off road is you can mm-hmm. kind of zone out a little bit more and get a lot of wonderful ideas, but even sitting in an office by yourself, yeah. you know, you can kind of shut the laptop and, and I spent a lot more time writing uh, and journaling and things like that. And, and those are connect points that, you know, when you're busy and you get in that rhythm of it. But um, from my perspective, you know, not that I had a big commute in Vancouver, but it takes time to get to the office. And then a big, big thing for me, Travis, I was traveling a lot. It's, it's tiring. Uh, you don't eat well. So, you know, really since uh, February, um, I've, I've been home and uh, my energy levels have been much, much better. And, you know, as I said, I'm, I'm eating more, but uh, I, mean, I, think, I think for the most part, I'm eating a lot better. What's one thing you thought, second question, what's one thing you thought was important before this period that you're happy to leave in the past? Yeah, you know, I think face-to-face interaction is very important. You know, don't get me wrong. I think being around people and getting a ride in and things like that, there's a a massive benefit to that. But um, I think also from a business perspective is there's a tendency to fill up days with meetings. I've learned and I've been trying to simplify things as much as I possibly can. But um, we've got, as I said, a great team. Um, Everybody's been remote for, you know, I guess a month and a half now. And I think we've been just as efficient. People have stepped up and, and, and actually worked harder. You know, the office environment, uh, I don't think is as important as maybe as I thought it was. Even maybe just let people make decisions on their own mm. and, and, and not have a meeting about it. I think this has proven to a lot of people, not just me, that you can run a business efficiently from really anywhere. It's interesting how we've been forced into it, but it's, you know, there's a lot of successful businesses who have been this way for a while now, but it has taken something like this for the rest of us to kind of catch up and be, and be okay with it. Third question, what's, uh, what's been the most memorable moment of joy you've had during this period? I think, you know, I mean, I've been locked down with my wife for, uh, for the whole time. And as I said to you uh, before, I used to travel a lot. As you know, when you're around somebody all the time, there's a little bit more friction point and things like that. But we've, 
I, I say this to people all the time is Monday to Friday, it feels the same. You know, honestly, I'm in meetings, emails, Zoom calls, the days go very quickly. My rhythm hasn't changed a lot. Yeah. But, you know, after work, the restaurants being closed, the movie theaters being closed, um, everything being closed. So, you know, I, I think just the more time together and just same thing, kind of quiet time like just going for walks and, yeah. and talking about things. And, and I think um, it's very easy to get caught up in being busy and people like to tell you how busy they are. And, and this yeah. is forced, forced to slow down. We've been walking and now that the weather's better here in the Okanagan, getting out on, on rides together and, you know, not, not for fitness, just riding around and talking and, um, and touring around and uh, feel very lucky to be able to do that. Mate, this has been great. I've, I've enjoyed our conversation, uh, as I always do. Uh, it's always insightful. I love hearing the story. I love kind of bringing the story to life for some of the people who may not have ha- heard it before. Uh, thanks, man. And congratulations on the show. Very impressive run here. How many more days do you got? Uh, we got nine more days. I'm actually a bit sad. I'm like, I've filled up the roster for the rest of the month for, for guests. And there's hundreds of people that I wish I would have been able to get on the show that that, mm-hmm. that I haven't. So... I'm going to have to look at uh, some the next iteration of this. It won't be every day, that's for sure. My wife probably would kill me if I did that. But yeah. uh, it'll be some kind of iteration. But I've been enjoying it. And looking back on the roster of people has been really fulfilling. So Awesome. Good for you. I've enjoyed uh, watching and listening as well. So good seeing you, brother. Thanks, mate. Appreciate it. Thanks, Chris. I appreciate your time and for providing such a great insight into how VeloFix came to be. That's it for day 22 of the I'm Curious to Know project, a series of daily conversations with world-class athletes, innovators, and unique personalities from the endurance sports world. Thanks for being here. It means a lot. I'm Travis McKenzie, and this is the Inner Voice Podcast.